All right, everyone. Welcome back to Critical Care Scenarios. This is Brandon Odo back here with Brian Bowling. Hey, everybody. And we have a couple of guests for you today, and one you already know. We are we here with Brendan Reardon uh, out of Washington. Uh, you may recall from a unfortunate case in the CTICU. And here with him, we have Chris Romilo, one of his colleagues there, a nurse practitioner in the University of Washington CTICU. And together with their powers combined, um, they're going to teach us a little more about post-op heart surgery and what happens when things go badly. So Brian, you want to take us away? Yeah. Hey, wait uh, a minute. Brent, did, didn't we save that patient in that unfortunate case of cardiac surgery last time? I think we save every patient, don't we? Oh yeah. All yeah. my patients do well. Yeah. So yeah, nothing goes wrong uh, in our ICU. I mean, things go wrong, but we fix them. All right. Well, so Chris, you are in the CTICU and uh, you've just finished some lunch and uh, you get a, you get a call that um, there's a case that's finishing up in the operating room and it's going to be coming to you here in just a few minutes. It's a 67 year old male who has just undergone an elective four vessel cabbage. So you get the call that they're rolling to the ICU and you go and meet them and in the room. So first thing I guess is you walk in the room and you find the patient being moved uh, into the ICU room from the operating room. Um, anesthesia is there as well as the ICU team. What do you do first? What do you want to know? What do you, who do you talk to? What do you do? Um, so there's a couple of things that I like to consider uh, when we get the page that the patient is leaving the OR. Um, one thing in particular is to look up the history because there are several things in their history that I'm going to want to know uh, and anticipate um, what kind of resuscitation they're going to need in their first few hours. And then also to kind of give some perspective as to what they saw in the OR potentially. Um, I always kind of like to know, one, if they have any long-term anticoagulation that they've been receiving because one of the first things I think of are what are the risks of this person having ongoing medical bleeding or oozing. Um, I also like to think about what kind of antihypertensives or heart fail heart failure uh, therapies they were on at home, um, because sometimes what we'll see, especially with ACE inhibitors, is some degree of uh, post bypass asplesia. So. Just getting a good history, things like that would, would cue me into what some of the struggles and barriers I may face in the immediate post-op. And because specifically this one is a cabbage, I, I think it's helpful to know um, where what the distribution is uh, of the disease and potentially what might come out uncorrected or un not revascularized. revascularized. <laughs> okay. So you mean like what uh, what the targets were and where the graphs were placed and stuff like that? What they were aiming to fix. Yeah, um, okay. And then, and then also it doesn't hurt to know, like you, they'll have the whole workup done, like an echo. Surgeons are of the mind that if they go in to fix it uh, with a sternotomy, they try to get if there's any other structural heart issues or valves, things like that. Um, that kind of stuff. Um, and so as I'm watching the patient land, this can be a very tenuous time. 
uh, because there's two teams in the room, the ICU team and the anesthesia team, also the surgical team at the door or a surgical representative at least. Um, and when the monitors are being transferred and when they're getting settled in the ICU can be a very dangerous time. Um, so I try to keep the chit chat to minimum and make sure they are safely put onto our monitors and there's nothing that they need immediately before we start our sign up. All right. So how does your, how does your sign up normally go? Um, so usually it starts with the surgical representative giving us the download about uh, a little one-liner on the patient and then what they did and if there was any surgical complications. Um, and then anesthesia will start and they have a checklist of details that they share with us, starting with airway all the way through ins and outs, resuscitation, things like that. And then complications coming on or off bypass. Okay. Um, so the surgeon says the case was pretty straightforward. Um, no real complications. Um, you know, we did a Lima to LAD and a saphenous vein graft to the circumflex uh, and then on down to the OM. Um, really no issues. Uh, case went smooth. Um, anesthesia tells you he was an easy intubation. Um, grade one view, um, really no problems with hemodynamic instability from their point going on and off bypass was pretty unremarkable. It was a pretty clean case, not, uh, not a whole lot, um, going on. Um, he is not on any pressors now, but he has been kind of on and off epi during the case. Um, but, uh, but is now pretty stable. That sign out, uh, makes me very uncomfortable. Ryan. Yeah. How so? Do you think it's it was too, it, it, it was too good. It <laughs> yeah. was too good. You know, the inevitable is, is bound to happen. Yeah. So coming from, I've done CT surgery in both private practice and academic setting. That was my private practice sign out, uh, you know, no issues at all whatsoever. And anesthesia is going to leave the room and it's all going to fall apart five seconds after they walk out the door. But we'll see. Always. All right, in an so, academic center, we have a 10-second window rather than private practice, so yeah, a, little bit, yeah. a little bit more time for things to be controlled. Well, that's good. Um, you don't get the uh, the little pushes of, of, of pressers on the way down the hall to make everything look pretty so you can leave. Oh, you mean the elevator vasopressin? Yeah, no, yeah, we, we, know nothing, we know nothing about the elevator vasopressin. Good, good. It's just us, us then. Okay. Um, all right. So everything's looking fairly stable and everybody leaves you to do your work. Um, what is the first thing you want to do after you start to, to sort of get settled in? What's your sort of routine in recovering a patient? Sure. Um, so I try to keep it very simple and systematic with all of our cardiac surgery for any surgical patient. Um, so starting with a physical assessment is the, the chest tubes um, because the nature of surgery, you know, they're, if they're going to bleed, we just want to make sure that they're patent and open, um, taking note of what position they're in. Uh, and then you could just go through your normal assessment. So I'll go to cardiovascular typically next and look at what kind of support is infusing. So what kind of medications or, or drips they're on. Um, seeing what the telemetry is and then comparing that with the 12 lead EKG shortly after uh, as part of the data that we collect. And then 
respiratory, GI, so on and so forth. So just making sure the ventilator is in relatively okay settings and then following up with a chest X-ray. And that there's nothing suspicious or new there. Don't know effusions that we didn't anticipate or pneumothorax in an area that is not accessed by a chest tube. Um, so just the normal data collecting <laughs> immediately post-op. But one thing that I do like to kind of walk through, even with the families who've never um, had their loved ones go through cardiac surgery before, is I call it the pyramid of progression. Um, and so I always start with uh, bleeding, postoperative bleeding, because they had surgery. And then the next stage of this five-stage process is um, hemodynamics, so making sure that the drips uh, and the support that we're giving them is adequate. Uh, and that's where we tend to linger a little bit with resuscitation and making sure that they're well-supported. And then we wake them, targeted rise to zero. Then we do a spontaneous breathing trial, and then we activate as the last arm of that pyramid of progression. As soon as they're to extubation, then it's cardiac rehab. Um, then we're concerned more about PO pain regimen. Um, I, I say PO pain, TP. So as we do our, as we plan our resuscitation, we plan our de-resuscitation and then um, packaged items. So in this case with an ischemic, they will likely make sure to have to have a statin back on board, a beta blocker, things like that keeping it organized like that in my head. Uh, yeah, I like, I like that organization. So uh, let's talk about a couple of things you mentioned. Um, the first one, PO pain meds. So how do you handle pain management for these folks right away? So he's still intubated. Um, what would you what would you normally do in terms of, of pain control at this point? Um, if he looks like a candidate that will not linger too long in either the bleeding stage or the hemodynamic stage, uh, we like to use Dilaudid or fentanyl as short acting. And then when they're getting closer to extubation, we'll just, uh, if there's already an OG access, like an OG tube, we'll get some oxycodone to help them get through that and participate with the breathing trial with little difficulty. Okay. So you normally... Do, Otherwise, you propofol. About, yeah, so you're talking about... <laughs> Or uh, Dilaudid or uh, fentanyl pushes or a drip? Um, Dilaudid or fentanyl pushes. Okay. All right. And you mentioned propofol um, and, well, and Presidex both. What, do you have a preference for sedation? Um, if it's a simple cabbage that's straightforward, I'm all about Presidex, especially because if we're trying to get them towards extubation sooner. Um, yeah, propofol, if things can tend to linger or if uh, wakening can is hemodynamically significant. Propofol sometimes is helpful. Okay. All right. And then the <clears> second <throat> thing you mentioned. Hey, Brian. Was, yeah. So just in, in um, you know, institutionally, our anesthesiologists prefer propofol for intraoperative sedation. So that's usually what we're left with uh, when they come out, um, which is great. I hope that they start using more Presidex intraop. Basically, uh, you know, kind of may help prevent postoperative delirium. Uh, and then DEX we find, you know, particularly helpful if we have somebody who's got significant anxiety or has, um, uh, you know, pretty sensitive gag reflex and they'll have sensation of the breathing tube being in as they're awake and if we want to facilitate extubation. Um, but uh, typically we just go from propofol to off using uh, using fentanyl and Dilaudid as, uh, as adjunctive therapies. Okay. All right. Um so you mentioned extubation. What's your target window sort of for extubation? Do you have a timeline in mind or just sort of see how people do? 
So if there are no barriers and the barriers are mainly hemodynamic or pain that is not adequately treated um, uh, or non-wakefulness, then we try to get them extubated as soon as possible. So as long as we know that bleeding is not an issue and that hemodynamically they'll tolerate wakening and spontaneous breathing, then we, we go right away for it. Right away, meaning like as soon as they're in the Within isolation. an hour okay. to try to wake them. Yeah, within okay. the hour. Mm-hmm. Now, do you do you guys reverse anesthesia yourselves? Do they get reversal before they leave the operating room? Or is that a ICU procedure where you guys are? That's a good question. Um, so what we're doing is uh, we are currently doing twitch monitoring when uh, cardiac anesthesia drops off folks to see if they would qualify for reversal with the gamadex. Um, And so depending on what they score on initial arrival and when their last uh, paralytic was given, they uh, anesthesia will carry the gamadex with them and push before they leave, sign out. Okay, so you're- we, uh, we're, we're moving towards, uh, towards trying to, to be compliant more with ERACs, you know, this, this early recovery after cardiac surgery for, for those in the audience who aren't familiar with the abbreviation. Uh, and part of that is, is you know, identifying patients who uh, would qualify for early extubation after surgery. So in something that is an uncomplicated cabbage, you know, we're looking at a four hour target, which actually kind of supersedes the, the recommended targets. But that means, you know, potentially reversal of, of neuromuscular blockade by anesthesia in the OR, uh, early spontaneous awakening trial, kind of as soon as they get up to the ICU and, and are found to be um, hemodynamically stable with no immediate complications. Um, but then because we're, you know, in particular, because UW does a lot of really complex surgery and a lot of heart failure surgery, a good portion of our patients aren't going to be candidates for early extubation. And so that's where we we need to recognize during that surgical sign out, and this is something that will come from our surgical and anesthesia colleagues, okay, this patient is a, you know, a pathway patient um, who we can do immediate spontaneous awakening and breathing trials and get them extubated within four hours versus, okay, this patient is probably going to be, you know, going to need a good bit of resuscitation. They may need adjunctive therapies for uh, for, you know, inhale therapies for either for, for right heart protection or for lung disease, concomitant lung disease. And then we sort of, then our window becomes, okay, let's see how they do over these first couple of hours. And then we'll see, uh, you know, when, when we're able to get them extubated. Okay, great. All right. So, uh, this guy's looking pretty good. He's pretty stable. Uh, you turn the propofol off, he wakes up appropriately, moves everything, follows commands. Um, is this, this is somebody that you would just leave the propofol off and kind of see how things go then? So long as he's tolerating uh, the tube being in, which is typically a very uncomfortable procedure, then absolutely. If he's participating, then no propofol is ideal. Okay. All right. So yeah, he, I mean, he's reasonably comfortable. He, you know, he's obviously somewhat uncomfortable uh, with the tube in, uh, but he, he can get by. So, so he has two mediastinal chest tubes. Uh, and he has a large JP drain in the right chest in the pleural space. Um, he's hemodynamically stable, normal sinus in the 80s. Pressure's 100 over 55 of the mean to 70. And he is satting 99% on 40, uh, 50% FiO2. Um, do you guys have 
PA monitoring in these folks? PA cath? Not typically. Okay. Um, this there if there is a reduced ejection fraction going in, like if they're an ischemic with reduced ejection fraction, then they may. Okay. Uh, well, let's assume he did. He has a PA cath in place, so his uh, his cardiac index is two point four. <laughs> his PA pressures are okay, cool. eighteen over twelve. CVP is three, and uh, you got lucky. They put in a one with a continuous SVO two monitor, and his SVO two is sixty eight. You've had about a hundred mLs of blood out of the chest tube. Uh, this is on arrival, and forty mLs of dark kind of concentrated urine. Um, okay, so about. 45 minutes later, you get a call from the nurse saying um, blood pressure is down a bit and he's starting to get a little tackier. Um, PA pressures are a little up, um, but good news is his chest tube output has decreased. So uh, you go and find that he is now uh, sinus tack in the low hundreds, like 100, 105. His pressure is 90 over 45, which gives you a map of 60. He is still satting good on 50%. Uh, his index now is 1.8. His PA pressures are 28 over 20, and his CVP is 6. And his SVO2 has dropped to 55. What do you want to do in terms of assessment, or do you want to just do stuff? It's a good question. Um, I think there's an assessment piece that can be accomplished, but some interventions to start. Uh, I assume the initial admission labs would have resulted by now. Um, and if the chest about puts load with the cardiac index being low and the SVO2 being low, I feel like we're headed towards there being a tamponade-like physiology. So part of the assessment piece is to look at the two mediastinal drains and trace them all the way up into the chest and see if there's an appreciable clot um, there. All the while, I'm also... Uh, trying to get hold of our point of care ultrasound, which at times can be helpful even in these uh, fresh out of cardiac surgery patients, because if there is a window, then it might give some idea. Um, uh, if there's an effusion that's accumulating. And I do also have a question as to what infusion agents, like what's what medications he's putting on, what drips, uh, so currently he is just on um, a little bit of maintenance fluid and an insulin drip. He's not on any vasoactives. Okay. And then also, um, did anesthesia happen to give their echo findings on sign out? Um, they did. So they did a TEE and basically found pretty normal function, no valvular dis, uh, dysfunction that they could see, um, you know, sort of expected findings. Sure. No uh, wall motion abnormality is my question because no. he is a cabbage. So, okay. Yeah, no, no wall um, motion or nothing that's that incredibly saw. changed. Ryan, can I ask a clarification question? Sure. What is maintenance IV fluid? Is that a thing? Yeah. I mean, some places. <laughs> and Chris, are you, uh, um, you're expecting so in, your tubes. Are you routinely uh, milking or stripping these? So in our institution, yes. <laughs> um, we are full strippers. We just, <laughs> that's what our surgical colleagues prefer, just all strip. <laughs> um, 
there's some debate about that. Some people prefer milking as uh, that like suction damage is not nearly as bad. And if we such if we do strip the tube, that tells us a little bit about um, clot in the tube as well. Um, as you run your drain, if it is it has that capacity, it'll completely come to suction, which gives a little bit more. I don't know the sensitivity of this, so I don't know if it's true, but we have a gestalt that uh, it means that the tubes are patent. Um, well, that's not always true. Sometimes there's uh, uh, still a hematoma that can form causing tamponade physiology anyway. Um, and the reason I asked about uh, wall motion abnormality and things like that is if there is something that was either undervascularized or a graft that went, it would be helpful to know um, in somebody who now has fresh cardiac surgery, new hypotension as part of like what we're looking for in resuscitation. Um, so yeah, I would start with checking the chest tubes themselves, getting an echo, and if they have the capacity to get volume or product resuscitation to kind of temporize us through as we do the differential, that's what I'll do. Um, we prefer if we can give um, blood if they need it, then to do that. Uh, otherwise, I would probably give this person either a bolus of 500 of LR in the meantime or 250 of albumin to start while I'm doing my other assessment pieces. Okay. So he, he showed up from the OR with a cooler uh, that has two units of reds left in it. So you can give one of those if you want. You... Long as the hemoglobin is reasonable, I, I'll give something for that or okay. to match whatever the chest tube drainage was. Yeah. So hey, Brian, did he, um, did he, did he get any blood intra-op? He did. He got two units. Okay. So again, this is sort of one of those nuanced things about cardiac surgery, but in, in, what's classified as a non-complicated cabbage, which it sounds like this would be. Um, they try to actually make this a bloodless surgery. Any Anytime that you yeah. don't, it's, it's basically an STS measure, measurement of quality of surgical care. Um, and so a lot of times they'll they'll take autologous blood from the patient beforehand and, and give that back and just try to avoid transfusion. But so just something to consider in, in terms of your normal post cabbage resuscitation is that blood is probably not going to be the first thing to reach for um, if they haven't gotten it already, or if it wasn't a, uh, a complicated case. Okay. Uh, let's see. So you, you mentioned you were going to look at his chest tubes. Uh, his chest tubes seem to be patent. Uh, there is some clot in the mediastinal tube, but it's not obstructive. Uh, you're able to kind of milk it down um, at least from what you can see. Uh, you so you get the echo or you get the ultrasound machine. Where are you gonna Where are you gonna look at him for an echo? So you mentioned uh, if you could get windows. What post cardiac surgery? I guess there's some complications getting windows on these folks. Uh, what are some of the problems that you run into? So usually it's just a ton of inflammation that it's not really easy to discern. You could probably get some identifiable structures, but nothing is clear enough to make a diagnosis. Um, I would, if, you know, they typically are a sternotomy approach. So I try to just run through all of the cardiac views systematically and attempt just rapidly to get the views if I can. But more often than not, I end up in the apical four looking for something. Okay. And just for folks who aren't familiar, what are you looking for? in your apical four? So um, in the apical four, just a clear view of all four chambers and then collection, uh, any kind of pericardial effusion or pleural effusion. Um, it would be harder to know 
to the right is access, but not the left. And so the chest x-ray might actually be helpful too, if there's something accumulating in the left that's causing um, tamponade physiology. So reviewing that and making sure we've got that taken care of. But if there's a right-sided pleurofusion that the JP is not getting, then we might be able to see that. Um, and then just effusion around the heart. Okay. Um, so you can get an okay view with your apical forward and you do see a um, pretty decent pericardial effusion. Uh, what in your mind distinguishes pericardial effusion from tamponade on an echo? So it's if they have physiology. Uh, this is a really good question. What you'll see is just a, uh, and I like to use EKG with um, my images because I'm too simple to think about where they are in the cardiac cycle and how the chambers should be moving. And so if I have the EKG hooked up to the echo machine, that's even easier because I know QRS, fistily, this should be happening in the ventricle or the P wave, this is what should be happening in the atria. And so basically it's if you're seeing a collapse of either the atria and the ventricle uh, in this setting when they're not supposed to be, uh, in addition to that, if there's hypotension that's undifferentiated, that's more than enough to kind of push our surgeons to investigating this tamponade a little more aggressively or effusion right. a little more aggressively. All right. So let's say you you see what you think is probably the beginnings of tamponade physiology uh, on your echo. Um, you're giving the blood. He's still tacky. His pressure's a little bit better. It maps up to 65, uh, but his index is now down to 1.3 and his PA pressures are 30 over 26. SVO2 continues to fall 48 and his CVP is up to 14 now. So uh, all the while, while I was doing my diagnostics, I'm hoping that I'm encouraging my surgical colleagues to consider uh, investigating him aggressively for this, for what could be tamponade. In the meantime, all I can do is continue to resuscitate. So if there's any product being lost, trying to replete that product um, and then giving him fluid until they make a decision. Okay. It's not, it's not light. It's hard whenever you have to take back to the OR um, and it's, especially hard in cabbages when you have to crash back because opening a sternotomy is a risk to the grass. Um, and so I, I understand that this has to be a tempered uh, decision. And if the patient is still intubated, which I'm hoping they are, <laughs> uh, I would advocate if they want a more clear idea to call for CT anesthesia back and do a TEE for there to be clear and present danger for them. Although I think that the hemodynamics speak for themselves. Yeah. Now, along with fluid, are you using iotropes or pressors to temporize as well? We can. Um, if they have epi, I just uh, would refrain from escalating to too high doses of epi because I would hate to add to a worsening problem. So if, usually we have uh, epi infusing from the case and we'll just throw on like 0.02 or 0.04, especially in the setting of pretty bad hypotension. But really the, the goal is to get them to what we think is the destination, which is back to the OR. One of the nice things about utilizing a, an inotrope in this case is it's it's potentially diagnostic as well as therapeutic. You know, if you put an inotrope on a patient who is is languishing because of uh, because of output failure, then that's great. If you put inotropes on somebody who's failing because of tamponade development, then uh, it's not going to work. So. I would uh, I would be in favor of trying a little inotrope here in addition to volume recess. Um, and if I don't get a, so 
it's kind of the best of both worlds, right? If, if it, if it improves, then you've bought yourself a little bit more time. And if it doesn't improve, then you sort of cinched your diagnosis, um, without needing any further investigations. Sure. So, um, your pressure is continuing to fall now. Um, what point are you looking to try to, you want to try some inotrope? What, what's your sort of, uh, is there a, like a magic, uh, thing that you see or a number that makes you say, let's try some epi or are you going to stick with fluid resuscitation? I think in the beginning uh, with the index of 1.5 and the SCO2 in the 50s, I would have tried inotropes because he came out much better than that. Um, and I would escalate epi to like 0.06 before I started um, uh, pushing for other kind of assistance or, or, and, and volume resuscitate accordingly. So okay. what I like to do is I like to watch the filling pressures as I give that volume. And as I start inotropes to see how much room I have before we start running out of space. <laughs> okay. All right. So you, you put a little epi on, um, you're on the phone with the surgeons and telling them what's going on and you, you look and now he's up in the one teens, heart rate in the one teens, uh, pressure's falling. His index is now one. Uh, PA is now 40 over 32 and a CVP is 22. What are you telling the surgeons? Um, well, we don't know if we have a safety margin to take him down anymore. Um, if we started inotropes and we are maxing out on our vasoactive like norepi or vaso, which they typically can come out on to help with just MAP, like maintaining a MAP greater than 65, um, we've even entertained giving a second inotrope in, in case that they suddenly have just such poor function. Um, so there's several things that I'm thinking of. I'm thinking, is this truly just a tamponade or is there also now a graft failure of sorts? Uh, in which case the uh, TEE might help if there's any new wall motion abnormalities. It would help give further clarification of the tamponade that we're suspecting to clarify if there's real tamponade physiology. And then if there was new wall motion abnormalities and it wasn't tamponade, then we would start thinking about other things like, does this patient need to go to the cath lab? Uh, did one of the graphs go down and that's the only other way? Um, so those are my two things. Is, is it one of the graphs or is it truly tamponade? And TEE uh, will help a lot with that. All right. So this patient so clearly has a calcium chloride deficiency, so we should rectify that immediately give lots of calcium to help yeah. with hypotension. <laughs> it's our favorite go-to drug. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Um, you mentioned a second inotrope. What's your, what's your go-to second line inotrope? So if they weren't showing us kind of distributive picture before we would, I would think of dobutamine as a reasonable ad. Um, if not, if they do look like there's a distributive picture, so like they have very poor tone even immediately out, I hate to say it, and I think Brendan might disagree, <laughs> but we occasionally start uh, dopamine. I have died. I, I have suffered a cardiac arrest. Uh, I saw that he was pacing that. back there, waving his hands, <laughs> trying to wave you off from the dopamine. No, and totally we do not like to use that. I agree. It's uh, it's only under, you know, especially if he's tachycardic and he's getting more and more tachycardic, and we don't uh, prefer dopamine at all, but as a rescue. Uh, if we're escalating everything else, then sometimes sure. we have no choice. Sure. 
Sure. So uh, cardiac anesthesia is on their way with the TEE. Uh, your surgeon says, I'm, I'm coming in. I'm, I'm on my way up now. Um, and now your map is 50 um, and your heart rate is starting to drop. Um, what do you what do you do? So this is something that if we're pretty convinced that this is tamponade um, and we have all of the mind, great minds together and they think that the most appropriate step as the surgeons come in is to prepare to get back in the chest, then we do have a system for that. It would be a very complex opening as he was closed when he arrived. Um, but uh, that is one thing that I'm going to prepare to do because I think that is inevitable with this hypotension. Um so I do rally the troops to say, bring the complex open cart uh, set up. And in the meantime, I continue to do the resuscitation. So give volume when I think it's appropriate and give every CC that they need and not a CC more. Um, try to recruit them with more inotropes. Uh, at this point, I think um, we should be adding dopamine. Uh, so epi up to 0.06 to 0.08, sometimes at 0.1, which I also don't like as an inotrope, but we do that in rescue scenarios. And then adding dopamine at 3.805, in addition to norepi and vaso, which I assume are already uh, infusing. Okay, so they're getting the uh, they're getting the resternotomy stuff ready. Uh, what what's your role in all this? Um, so. The role of the APP is to run the resuscitation. Um, and I think that it's an important role because we have the entire timeline and history of the patient in their critical care state so far. Um, and that way it can focus uh, the task for the operators to get in the chest and for CT anesthesia to do the echo. So um, we, with our nurse colleagues, they'll help with the maintaining sedation and then we'll help with the resuscitation. So hemodynamics focus as well as a ventilator. Okay. Um, all right. So the surgeon's there and they've decided that n now the chest output is zero, chest output is zero. Um, your pressure and heart rate are both continuing to fall. Uh, so I think they're going to reopen the chest. Um, what's your, what's your normal process when this starts to happen? So they're, they're opening the chest, you're running the resuscitation. Um, what happens next? So once they get to the bedside and they're getting ready to open, um, it goes back to kind of what it looked like at sign out where it can be a very tenuous time. Now you have the surgical team and our team um, and even, again, the CT anesthesia team joining us. Uh, it, we need to be mindful of what chest tube output the surgeons are having and during this procedure and, and be mindful to replete if they need volume to uh, replete products with that. Um, to kind of help direct the nurses as to how to help with the sedation during the procedure. In this case, we would likely ask for more propofol um, and to, to give a bolus in order to make sure that the patient doesn't suffer any discomfort. And then to continue with the fentanyl, at this time I would be asking for fentanyl boluses to make sure that the pain is well treated in the, while they're in procedure. Um, another question that I would have for my surgical colleagues is if they think that they would benefit from being paralyzed again while they get back in the chest. But again, I would want the pain um, and sedation to be adequate before we did that. Um, and one quick and easy way that I do that is I just ask for the intubation med kit uh, as that has rocuronium in it. Uh, we can do that as bedside providers as long as the airway is still there and secure. And then if there's any ventilator management, do that 
uh, while they get in. All right. Uh, okay, so they open the chest and find, yeah, he's got a big tamponade uh, that they open, they open a pericardium and drain, and now he's stable. Vitals are all coming back up. Obviously, he's going to go back to the operating room at this point, right? For some definitive management. Sometimes with the, yeah, it's our culture, and I know that we don't really speak to this much, but um, in our culture, they kind of just leave him open for the night because if it was bad enough that, uh, he needed to be opened uh, at the bedside, then they'll just book him for the next day for take back, wash out, and closure, uh, and just give them a night of hemodynamic stability. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so what are you, what are you going to look for tonight? And it's sort of the end of the day and the night team is kind of coming in and what are you signing out specifically to watch for? Or what are you thinking if you're the night person coming in, what are you thinking in terms of, things you need to be aware of for this guy who's had a tamponade event. Now he's got an open chest. So I just wanted to clarify with the surgeons that where they saw the bleeding and if this was expected in comparison to when they were in the initial case, sometimes they're not very forthcoming as to what they think is might be a culprit. Um, and then the second thing is because they did enter the chest again, just making sure we follow up that 12 kg and there's nothing new. Um, if a graft had gone down or had blown, either that being a contributor or that having another effect before they go down. And then it just kind of resets. As soon as the chest is open at the bedside, it resets as if they're a fresh uh, a patient coming out of the OR again, um, adjust, adjusting for acid base status, you know, assessing their labs and their coagulopathy. So it's not uncommon that uh, if they didn't look actively bleeding after they went in and the surgeons told me they got at what they thought was the cause of the tamponade, then I would only, I'll check coags regularly with a CBC or at least a hemoglobin hematocritin platelet um, two to four hours after the event. And depending on how much output they have again regularly so that we don't get behind if there's continued oozing and things like that. So it kind of just resets the immediate post-op mindset again, where it's frequent monitoring, frequent checking back on coagulopathy uh, and hemodynamics. This is perfect because as the nighttime guy in our institution, Chris would be signing out this patient to me. So yeah, just to, you know, to kind of echo what, what she said, uh, I want to know what happened, you know, and, and, and I think the important thing to, for the audience to understand is what's the purpose of redoing a sternotomy in a post-cardiac surgery patient. And it's really one of two things. One, it's to, manage a cardiac arrest. Um, and the, the reason for that is because trying to do external cardiac massage or, or chest compressions on a fresh sternotomy, because the sternum is not adhered uh, and there's wires there, and because the RV sits right underneath uh, the sternal table and there's an RCA, you know, potentially an RCA grafted material there, um, you are, you're at high risk of traumatizing that area. The second thing is external cardiac massage in a fresh sternotomy is extremely ineffective um, because, again, because that sternum is not intact, you're losing that pressure that's actually going to be applied in a downward fashion to the right ventricle to contract it. So if you if you you've experienced a cardiac arrest, your patient you know is no longer perfusing, you're going into the chest not just to reverse the underlying condition, but you're also doing it to physically uh, contract the heart yourself. And so, you know, you're, you, it's a rapid uh, cutting of those sternal wires. 
putting in a, a sternal retractor, getting your glove, you know, sterile gloved hand underneath the, the heart uh, with another sterile gloved hand on top of it and physically compressing what we call internal cardiac massage. And, and then as well, you know, once you've gotten that and you kind of get the patient back to a perfusing rhythm to a hemodynamically somewhat uh, sustainable state, then you can start looking at what the actual cause of the, of the deterioration was. The second thing is to prevent that from happening. So, you know, we have a, a patient in this situation who clinically has tamponade, right? The, the elevation of the filling pressures in concordance with a low CI hypotension, increased tachycardia. And what we can see is a, is a, a pericardial effusion on echocardiogram. This is tamponade until proven otherwise. And tamponade is inevitable in this particular situation because the patient has no time to <clears throat> compensate for the chronicity of it, is going to arrest eventually. So thankfully, in this particular case, you got, you know, you got the patient to a point where they um, did not arrest. You were able to intervene beforehand. And then you really have to look at, at what caused the tamponade. So hopefully the surgeons will will let you know. Uh, okay, yeah, we had a, a chest wall bleeder, you know, pretty common, or one of the grafts fell apart, much more uncommon and, and obviously much more dangerous. Uh, there was an aortotomy site bleeder, et cetera, et cetera. So if I'm coming on and Chris is telling me, okay, yeah, we had to reopen the sternotomy in the ICU today, uh, they went in there and they found that the RCA graft, uh, the anastomosis had, had come apart. Um, then that's a patient that they're going to have to take back to the OR and repair that, right? But if she says, oh, they, you know, they found a little chest wall bleeder, an intercostal artery bleeder, whatever, they ligated it, and it's fine, no more bleeding, hemodynamically stable, but they decided to leave the chest open uh, overnight just to make sure. That puts me on two pretty different pathways of things that I'm going to be concerned about and things that I'm going to be watching out for. Yeah, it's just to add to what Brendan is saying, the other reservation that I have, uh, especially because it is a cabbage, is that when you do, when if you do have to go for um, massage, cardiac massage, um, it can be a very touch and go situation. You may be committed to doing that all the way down to the OR because it, it can compromise a grasp. Um, and so that's why we try to get ahead of these things early uh, to avoid those kinds of complications down the line. Yeah, uh, good. All right, so uh, your surgeons, if your surgeons are anything like the surgeons I've, I've worked with over the years, they tell you, oh, it was just a little ooziness. Uh, but you you, you find <laughs> out when the attending leaves the room, the, the PA that's there helping and the fellow tell you there was a, there was a little bit of a chest wall bleed. Um, the graphs appear to be intact, so they're not too concerned. Uh, so they're going to just leave his chest open overnight, but not go to the cath lab, not go to the OR tonight. Um, what other thoughts do you have about this case and anything else that uh, you can think of? No, just kind of to reiterate, uh, because they had to open the chest and because it was so dramatic, um, I think, you know, complete reopening at the bedside is is not something that is kind of just a, oh, yeah, they just opened the chest kind of sign out. Um you know, just making sure that the 12 lead EKG in comparison to when they first came up, uh, like that everyone's kind of reviewed that and that there's no unexpected changes, that there's no persistent or ongoing hypotension that although it's recruitable now um, could become a slippery slope because 
you know, by inspection, they think that the graphs look okay, but you're always a little bit suspicious uh, that they they may not have been in the clear and, and require that frequent monitoring um, by a provider in that two to four, like every at least every hour or two hours uh, after that chest is open. You can also think of other things, um, just maintenance things. Uh, we do prophylactic uh, open chest antibiotics in, in, in these cases, especially if the way that they got into the chest was a little dramatic. And so we use vancomycin for that and just making sure they're covered with that is also helpful. And then having a de-escalation plan with the nurses for the inotropes and pressors is also good because you would hate for them to be too hypertensive and blow a graph that way. So um, having an out plan for, de for the uh, de-escalation and then frequent monitoring to make sure that there isn't anything that wasn't unchecked that becomes a problem overnight. Perfect. So, I, you know, there's a couple of, of take-home points that, you know, Chrissy did a great job summarizing kind of the thoughts of a, a resuscitating uh, APP or, or a resident um, in the cardiac surgery ICU in what seemed like a straightforward patient that, that obviously didn't turn out that way. Um, but, the, you know, the points that you made up front were really important, and that's to kind of make sure you have a good baseline. You know, if my patient had a CVP of three and now has a CVP of six, that's a huge increase, you know, considering that you haven't done any intervention on it. My patient came in with a heart rate of 80 and now my, my heart rate's 100. That's a significant change. So, you know, if I didn't pay attention when I first got the sign out and then I walked in and I saw, oh, my patient's got a CVP of six and they've got a, a PA diastolic of 10 and the index is 1.8, what am I thinking? I'm thinking, all right, this patient just needs fluid. Right. But if my if I came in and my now I'm higher than what my baseline was and I'm and my index is going down, now I'm start thinking about other things that are on my differential diagnosis. So and again, you know, seeing what the chest tube output is at start, you know, and, and this is some things that can be really subtle that can be missed is like making sure the nurses are marking the chest tube canisters of what the blood levels were when the patient arrived in the ICU and making sure that they're clarifying this is the total amount in the chest tubes, or this is the amount that's in the chest tubes in the 30 minutes since the patient has gotten up here. Um, you know, what's kind of interesting is that the recommendations that are gonna be coming forward, they're, they're recommending that we don't routinely strip or milk chest tubes. Uh, and, and I don't remember the specifics behind it, but I think that, you know, the, to the amount of complications that they can potentially produce versus how many they would uh, uh, prevent or avoid, I don't think that it, it favors this as a routine measurement, but I think it, it is helpful to know how to do it when you do feel like you have a patient who is at risk of developing tamponade. So, you know, the, if I call a surgeon and say like, hey, I'm worried that this, uh, that this patient is starting to tamponade, they're going to say, well, have you stripped the chest tubes? Are the chest tubes draining? So if I haven't done it, then I'm going to go in there and I'm going to need to be able to do those things. And I don't want to be like, uh, I don't know how. Um, so, so hopefully that's something that, you know, even though the recommendations are going away, that people are still learning how to do and have that sort of knowledge in their, uh, in their armament to be able to intervene upon. So you saw kind of the subtle things that we didn't think necessarily about right away. Chris, you, you know, you very quickly identified that this patient was starting to look like they had tamponade, um, you know, it's really nice when you have all the resources there, you have an attending in the ICU who's a cardiac anesthesiologist can do the TEE. You know, I am fairly adept at doing transthoracic echocardiogram, but 
you know, for those of people who aren't familiar with what cardiac surgery patients look like, fresh sternotomy with all kinds of interstitial edema underneath it. You've got chest tubes coming out from the mediastinum, kind of taking away your sub-xiphoid look. So really, a lot of times you are only left with an apical four-chamber view, and hopefully there's no left pleural chest tube, uh, which is going to block your access to that. So the, the you know the apical four is not the ideal place to look for tamponades, not the ideal place to look for a pericardial effusion, but there's probably enough information there that if you did feel um, you know that your patient was clinically at risk, that it could may help you know kind of convince someone or change someone's opinion about whether they need to be here to to intervene upon it. And this is my main struggle when I work overnight, and uh, you know I don't have a surgeon in house and. Um, I don't have a cardiac anesthesiologist in-house and I'm sort of left with my own devices. And there's probably, you know, many out there like me who, who suffer that same fate. So being able to use your eyes and, you know, people, people like to trash on the PA catheters, but uh, you know, this patient, you, you can diagnose their tamponade strictly with a, with a PA waveform, right? Um, so look for those elevations in PA pressures, that narrowing and equalization of those pressures with the CVP, and more often than not, you know, if I have a, a an effusion or a tamponade that's affecting the right side of the heart, I'll see that elevation in CVP with a concomitant decrease in your PA pressures because you're kind of losing that anti-grade flow out of the right ventricle. And, um, you know, some people can be uh, sort of artificially uh, encouraged by the relatively low PA pressures. But when you see that with a high CVP, with a low CI, and a low mixed venous, that is tamponade until proven otherwise. And that actually matches the classic hemodynamic profile of obstructive shock, which, you know, um, a lot of people classify tamponade as, um, where the CVP is extraordinarily high. The PAs could go either way, um, but there is that um, equalization of pressures, as Brendan was describing. Um, and I don't know if this is right, Brendan, you're going to have to correct me, but I think mainly like when I think of equalization of pressures, I'm thinking primarily the PA diastolic, if that applies, or is that the mean, the PA diastolics? Uh, In my I, mind, I look, that's what I think, but I don't know if I, it's true. <laughs> you, you know, you're familiar with the term narrowing of pulse pressure, right? In the, in the left side, that just shows you about output failure from the left side. I think along the same lines, you know, because the PA pressures are, can be dictated by post-capillary, you know, so something going on with the left ventricle or the mitral valve or the left atrium, it can be, you know, kind of pure uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension, or they can be, you know, um, uh, pre where, you know, your, your lungs themselves are, are what's causing your issue. But, and so in this case, when I see everything falling, um, or I see the PA diastolic increasing in comparison to the systolic, then I start thinking about, uh, output failure from the right side. So, you know, and, and the, the mainstays of therapy for tamponade are going to be fluid recess. And this is, this is kind of one of those only times where I am very aggressive with fluid resuscitation. It is the only time in my life when I will ask for a liter of fluid to be given at, at one single time. And that's really to, you know, prevent that atria from collapsing in diastole, try to, try to push against that fluid that's compressing uh, the right side of the heart, especially in diastole. And then what kind of rescue inotrope therapy, your epinephrine, you know, in this case, I would try to avoid any other inotrope just simply because of the fact that the patient's becoming so tachycardic and 
you know, induced tachycardia with tamponade uh, screams VT <laughs> to me. So I, yeah. um, and, you know, I, I, a, a little piece of me died inside when you said dopamine, Chris, I'm going to forgive you for it this time, but, uh, but, you know, never, never again. Um, but yeah, you here, know, so here's the trick. <laughs> the trick is, let me be honest with you guys. Here's the trick. How are you going to get the surgeons to come in? Because we know the surgeons need to come in. So the trick is you order the dopamine, you just don't start it. You put it at five. I'm just kidding. Don't record that part. Um, <laughs> but uh, this, this, it's, it's about making the sale because we can't get in the chest. So yeah. making the sale is giving them these points where the chest tube was a high output chest tube until the hypotension started. There's an echo that's suggestive of tamponade physiology. I cannot recruit them with everything in my arm and in, uh, in, in my armory. I cannot recruit them. So we need to get in to know, um, yeah. or you need to think and, if, if it's truly, sorry, go ahead. And that's, that's your, you know, can be your primary role sometimes as the, you know, the, the quote unquote first responder to a surgical emergency is you need to narrate a good story. So, you know, kind of, you know, telling himself like, okay, listen, like I've got high CV, so high CVP, low PA pressures. My index is crashing. My patient's becoming more tachycardic. My chest tubes aren't draining. Any surgeon, you know, cardiac surgeon worth their salt is going to say, okay, that patient's tamponading. I got to get there right away. Um, you know, so, so make sure that you know what your physical manifestations of a tamponade are and be able to hit on all of those salient points and be ready to, you know, kind of predict the answers or predict the questions that the surgeon's going to ask you and be ready to, to volunteer that that information up front. The more the more information you have that kind of fits their narrative about what tamponade looks like in a post-cardiac surgery patient, the better you are. If you say, I think one of your graphs went down <laughs> in a, a surgery that the surgeon thinks was technically very successful, they're gonna sneer at you and say, my graphs are fine. You just need to give the patient volume. Right. But if you say, hey, listen, my chest tubes aren't draining and I got all of this objective data that says my patient's tamponading, you're going to you're going to get a very different response from your uh, from your surgeon. So it's great to keep a wide differential up front and then sort of look for. And that's why, you know, that's why I love the PA catheter, because there are some really subtle findings on there that can help you to discriminate between an RCA graft going down and a patient developing tamponade. Right. I mean, when you marry those with the rest of the physical exam findings and your other objective data, it's a it's a home run. And hopefully, you know, in this case, our surgeon was very responsive. We got to that patient before they had the inevitable cardiac arrest, which is great. Um, but that doesn't always happen. And I think kind of all of us, uh, uh, maybe Brandon excluded because he doesn't work in our realm, uh, have experienced something um, in that in that in that line of work. All right, guys. Well, I think this has been amazing. Um, I think both the kind of perspective on how you go about your routine post-op care, but then also how you identify these problems and kind of narrow in on them. Um, There's probably not that many fields where patients can go from routine to being really, really sick as quickly as, you know, post-operative care of a cardiac surgery patient. So thank you both so much for joining us and maybe we will see you again soon.